Tēnā koutou katoa. I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to Insight. This week, a hundred years after the great influenza pandemic, are we prepared for whatever will come next? On November the 11th, 1918, celebrations broke out as the First World War finally came to a close with the signing of the armistice between Germany and the Allied powers. But at the same time, people were dying in hospital within hours of being admitted. People were collapsing on the road and being picked up and taken to hospital until the hospitals were full. We could hardly deal with them for the simple reason that they came in so thick and fast. In New Zealand, there are an estimated half a million cases of the flu and 9,000 people died. It wasn't so much that of one case, it was a case of hundreds of cases. A little boy came in one morning with the paper, he picked up the paper as I came into the shop. Oh, he said, look, he said, the children next door are crying. And uh, I said, are they? I said, why? He said, I don't know. I said, well, you go and see why they are crying. Come back and tell me. And he came back with the news that the mother and father looked awfully funny. They were, the mother was black and the father was turning black. And the children were, the baby, there was a baby in the cot and there was a little toddler running round and there was nobody to do anything for them. Nationwide, it's thought 135 children lost both parents. While the virus itself was bad, it was the pneumonia, a secondary infection, which proved to be the real killer. The skin of some people who developed pneumonia darkened due to burst blood vessels. Even though medical science has made huge leaps forward since then, Professor Michael Baker, who specialises in public health at Otago University in Wellington, believes the threat remains high. We're still very vulnerable. In fact, in many ways, nothing has changed since 1918. If we were confronted with an influenza virus, which had that kind of case fatality of over 1% of people who got infected died from it, one of the changes, of course, now is that the population's bigger. That pandemic killed 9,000 people in less than eight weeks. If we scale up to today's population, you're looking at 37,000 people dying in that period. And the peak day of that pandemic, there were an estimated 340 people um, died. And if we scale it up to today's number, you've got around 1,300 people dying in a single day. Professor Baker points to what he calls better planning and surveillance, competent people, and the use of antibiotics for secondary infections as ways New Zealand is better protected now than 100 years ago. But he also has a long list of risks that continue. There are literally tens of thousands of microbes in the animal world that have the potential to infect us. Most of them are viruses, but they're also bacteria. The other thing is that even pathogens we think um, are now effectively um, eradicated, like smallpox, um, could be reintroduced. Um, There's no guarantee that it is contained in the two sites that we know about. Um, It may be elsewhere or it could be recreated And that would be absolutely devastating because, of course, uh, now the world's population has very little natural immunity. Supplies of vaccines are quite small. um, And so um, it could take a number of years, if that was released, it could take a number of years um, before there was enough vaccine to protect everyone. And in that time, it could kill hundreds of millions of people, potentially. And we're talking there as a a, a warfare weapon. Well, that's a big fear, yes, that... um, Uh, a virus like that um, or an engineered virus could be um, released or potentially bacteria um, and we could see 
um, a, a really um, uh, appalling scenario unfold. Even now, a case of flu is not to be taken lightly. Well, I just felt unwell, as if I had a cold, and I thought I'd be fine, you know, but over the days it got actually worse, um, from um, fever to chills, to cough, um, just very lethargic, no energy. Yeah, and I had to go to uh, the after hours because I was actually quite scared of how I felt, um, just because I was burning up. Katrina has first-hand experience of just how bad you can feel when you have influenza rather than a cold. She felt so sick she worried something was going terribly wrong. I was just lying in bed and I got up and I was actually in tears and I went to my son and I said, there's something wrong with me, I don't feel well. And he said, oh, mummy, don't look good, you need to go somewhere. And then I went downstairs and got my partner to take me directly to after hours. Perfectly fit, healthy people still can catch flu and catch it badly. And you will know of stories of people who have ended up in intensive care and who have even died out of the blue with flu. This is what makes it so tricky. Nikki Turner is a Wellington GP and the director of the Immunisation Advisory Service at the University of Auckland. She says when you get the flu, there's no mistaking it for a cold. When you really get bad flu, you absolutely know. You feel like you're run over by a bus, you ache all over, you're shivery, you feel hot and cold, very tired, and it takes much longer to recover from than a cold or another viral illness. So you can be really worn out for a few weeks afterwards. In the US, the Centre for Disease Control is part of an international surveillance network that monitors the incidence of influenza around the world. In this recent podcast, its Associate Director for Global Health, Dr Joseph Breezy, lists the average figures of those affected every year. So flu is one of the leading causes of respiratory disease and, in fact, death from respiratory disease all over the world. Let me give you some numbers. 5 to 15% of everybody in the world is infected with flu every year. And so that counts for hundreds of millions of cases of flu each year. We just did a study that CDC led, but it included about 80 countries, that looked at how many deaths occur. And so of those hundreds of millions of cases, between 290 and 650,000 deaths occur each and every year from flu, and tens of millions of people are hospitalized. So, so flu is really a huge cause of death, of disease, of hospitalizations, and of just daily disease, staying home from work and, and missing school every year in the, in the world. The International Surveillance Network also keeps an eye out for anything unusual that might suggest a new strain could be emerging. In this country, the Environmental Science and Research Institute is responsible for collecting all the information about the incidence of influenza during the winter season. Its group leader of intelligence, Lisa Oakley, explains how they collect information from GPs, test swabs, the phone service health line and intensive care units at two Auckland hospitals – all of which helps with understanding of how bad the flu season is. She says information also helps with planning for immunisation for the following year. It gives us an idea about the strains that are circulating that can then inform next year's Southern Hemisphere vaccine. It also gives us a heads up of are there any other respiratory viruses that we need to worry about. So for example, um, SARS or MERS-CoV that's seen in the Arabian Peninsula. Our respiratory virus um, surveillance will actually ha give us a heads up as if there's a, another unusual strain, virus strain circulating. But the surveillance isn't just confined to this country and Lisa Oakley says it also isn't restricted to just influenza. 
We do an awful lot of international monitoring, so as well as our surveillance programme, which is actually looking at identifying isolates, testing samples, and getting results out of the, out of the test laboratory testing. We also do international monitoring and horizon scanning as well. So we're closely monitoring every week what's going on overseas. So, for example, at the moment, we are watching closely the Ebola virus disease issues occurring in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and we report on that weekly to the Ministry of Health. So that's part of our international monitoring program as well. So we're watching the unusual strains of flu virus that we're seeing in China in, in birds at the moment. We're looking at Ebola virus disease. We're watching polio in New Guinea. So we're, we're watching all of this stuff really closely overseas. The memories of some of those who experienced the Great Plague, as it was called, were captured in a New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation documentary in 1967. In Wellington, people walking across the road to enter the restaurant to get a feed and drop and dead everywhere. This man drove a horse and dray in 1918, and increasingly his service was needed to transport the dead. It was the, the most they buried in Wellington one day was 108, and, and, and then they, they got it out in the camp at Trentham, out the soldiers' camp. They used to take the lorries out of, of a morning with their coffins and that, and, and fetch them in them at night and they buried them at Crawley in a ring. It's still there now in the ring of like half moon where they, they was buried. And a number of those transported to the cemetery found a final resting place here in public section two. Grave after grave bears a date in November 1918. Mary Henry Appleton died 1918. May Phillips who died on the 16th of November, aged 32 years. Evelyn Smith, who died on the 29th, just short of reaching three years old. On the 19th of November, there were 63 burials at Karori, the most ever in one day. And that week, 340 people were interred. During the month, 100 years ago, 708 people were buried. We get up one morning and half of them was down with the flu. Half of uh, everyone practically was down. Every house was down and everything. And uh, went up to work and, of course, went, went worked about that day and then the next day there was no one, no one standing. There. Everything was at a standstill. And then they sent out for runners from medicine to go along the hut road and all up. There was no houses, only dotted then, farms and to go up to see if anyone was down, well, everyone out here they went to, they, they was down with it. Well, you had to come back to this depot and they give you medicine and then they sent men up, if there's milking cows, whatever they're doing, sent men up what was standing to, uh, like, to look after them and, and milk the cows and all that. And when you come down again, you went, they had a, a fumigator where you went through. Annie Whitaker volunteered to work as a Red Cross nurse in Auckland. Underneath of the pavilion there at Victoria Park, there was over 300 bodies. And they were just as they were brought in. We had no grave diggers. There was no grave diggers and no, uh, no undertakers. Well... It was the only one way out of it, as I could see, was the destructor, the big destructor, the big chimney. 
Even with this year's fairly mild season, Michelle Baum, the clinical lead for the Infectious Diseases Service at the Capital and Coast DHB, says you can't underestimate how severely flu can affect some people, even if it tends to be worse for those with other health issues. She says this year there was a late peak and then the intensive care unit in her hospital started to fill up. Most of the people that came into our intensive care this year didn't have underlying conditions, not the traditional risk factors. Many of them were kids, many of them were under five years old. So you should be aware of it and should be aware how sick people can get even without underlying um, health problems. Michelle Baum says they're always prepared for a possible surge over the winter months. We open up extra beds, we have extra staffing that we bring on specifically because we know there is a surge in the admission rates because of influenza every year. Um, We look at what resources are going to be needed and we we actually do plans starting back in March and April of every single year um, getting ready for this. If you're having levels that are exceeding seasonal rates you would need to bring in extra resources and that's when we tie in with what's happening regionally and what's happening at a ministry level. And we we need to remember this has impact on the whole hospital but the wider community as well. How well we pull through a pandemic depends on how well we work with our communities and what resources we can tap into there because a health service can never do this alone. I'm Philippa Tolley and you're listening to an insight programme about how prepared New Zealand is to deal with a pandemic. Given how interconnected the world is now, with international travel more accessible than ever before, the opportunity for a new strain of influenza or other infectious agent to hitch a ride and end up in New Zealand is vastly increased. A passenger on a Virgin Australia flight quarantined at Auckland Airport says most of those on board had developed flu-like symptoms soon after takeoff from Saudi Arabia. The response to a pandemic is planned for and coordinated through an emergency management team based at the Ministry of Health. Its director, Charlie Blanche, is confident the right legislation is in place to ensure people can be told what to do to try to stop it spreading while also making sure society can still function. So we've got the um, ability to control the movement of people. I think realistically, though, closing the borders is not um, something that we'd look at for pandemic influenza. We know that with um, pandemic influenza, people can be ill a day or so before they start displaying symptoms. It's one of the reasons why we don't think that temperature screening or thermal cameras at the border is a particularly effective option. People can take um, paracetamol or aspirin to mask their symptoms as they come across the border. What we're really focused on is making sure that the health sector can respond effectively and provide good primary care and then advice and support to people who might need to be looking after themselves and their family at home. Then having spent three and a half months working in Sierra Leone during Ebola virus disease and having seen firsthand the challenges and the impact, the unfairness and the bad outcomes of putting cordons and armed police around communities and the harm that did to the response in many circumstances. It's, it's not an issue for, or it's not a consideration for New Zealand. Michelle Baum describes how challenging it is to maintain hospital supplies in the face of competition from a world that is all facing the same threat. It's something that we are 
acutely aware of, particularly with globalisation of the world, um, we know that a flu outbreak or any other pandemic will spread much quicker now around the world because people travel more and goods travel more. Um, we have to look at our procurement chains. We see it all the time. Like when uh, in 2014 with the um, Ebola outbreak in West Africa, we were looking at um, the procurement of um, gowns and gloves and masks just in case we had somebody come back here and we had an outbreak. And every country in the world was doing the same. But Charlie Blanche says there are national pandemic reserve supplies. So it's things like antiviral drugs, so Relenza and Tamiflu, and we've got just over a million courses to use in some of the early phases of a, a pandemic. And then it's things like masks and respiratory protection, which is going to be one of the most effective means of protecting workers and the, the population. A supply of 10.2 million syringes, which would then support a vaccination campaign once a pandemic-specific vaccine becomes available. And that's one of the challenges that every country faces globally, um, that it will take the vaccine manufacturers about six months to change from their production of seasonal flu vaccine to identify and develop a vaccine against a particular strain that's causing the pandemic and then for that to move into production and become available. So we know that we're going to have to get through the first pandemic wave, as we call it, the first or second wave in that six-month period before an effective vaccine becomes available. Pharmac also requires medical wholesalers to hold higher than minimum stocks of drugs in the country. So Charlie Blanche says New Zealand does have a reasonable level of resilience. But why is the flu virus so dangerous? 2009 pandemic, we realised this room is too small. We have so many samples. One day... Here at ESR in Wallaceville, north of Wellington, Dr Sue Huang, the director of the WHO National Influenza Centre, describes how they test the swabs that are sent in for the suspected flu viruses to be identified. So you have a swab and you get into somebody's nose and to the point the person almost wants to have a tear, that's a good time because this is the area where the flu starts to replicate. She describes the virus as very cunning. So the virus can mutate very easily, and that's also the smarter part of the virus. And so it will mutate quickly, and the human generates antibody against the virus. The virus knows how to mutate, how to change. And then you basically are chasing the tails, because when the virus has changed, your antibody actually are no longer effective. So the same story with the vaccine. And its ability to turn into a pandemic strain comes from its capability to mix with flus that normally affect animals. The origin of the flu in human actually derived from uh, animals, from especially from the wild birds population. And uh, they have this ability uh, to jump into a uh, um, human because they can kind of like a mating, the animal virus, the human virus, mingle together, generate a brand new uh, hemoglobin, brand new neuromendides, whatever. And they actually are able to um, transmit in a population where you have no immunity. So that's so-called antigenic shift. And that is really the biggest worry because it causes a pandemic. And uh, I think no 
other viruses has this capability like a flu. In looking for greater protection for the future, Dr Huang has been researching whether more attention needs to be given to other parts of the virus when it comes to developing new vaccines for the future. The strategy really focuses so much on hemagglutinin protein, which is the, the most abundant surface protein on the flu virus. You know, we just did a study um, uh, published in Journal of Infectious Disease this year, and we did a, a seroprevalence study, look at people who had a natural flu infection in terms of their antibody against the hemagglutinin, the most abundant protein, but we also looked at uh, the protein against uh, the antibody against uh, the second abundant protein, the neuraminidase. And we found so surprising to us actually, the antibody response to neuraminidase is much more robust, much more so than to hemagglutinin. And uh, um, that has a, a profound impact in our thinking in the future. Um, should we think a future vaccine? design uh, to be a bit more broad. In that way, you may be able to uh, produce a vaccine um, which lasts for three years, four years, or even five years. That would be ideal. This season has been very successful on the vaccination front, with more people apparently getting a jab than ever before. Provisional figures for the last year indicate nearly 1,325,000 people were vaccinated this year, an increase of 100,000 on last year, and a big jump compared with smaller increases in the tens of thousands in previous years. Nikki Turner is delighted with this year's figures. That's about a quarter of our population. Now, when you're getting that many people vaccinated in a country... It's giving them protection, but actually it's giving what we call herd immunity. So I believe we may be beginning to see the fact that the more people who are vaccinated, the less we spread it to each other. So that is really the message. Are we winning? Partially. One of the problems is people will always muddle up flus with colds, and so when they get a bad cold or another viral illness, they'll think the vaccine doesn't work. The other side of it, the vaccine isn't perfect. And it only works about 50 or 60% of the time. So people will say, what's the point? But when you say, well, your risk is really high, lots of people every year get flu, it's a numbers game. But she feels another leap in the figures may not come about until school children are vaccinated as well. Rates have increased in the United Kingdom, probably due to a nasal spray vaccination being offered to pupils in the first five years of school. But Nikki Turner says that's unlikely to be an option for New Zealand for some time. Well, this is a manufacturing issue. Um, there's only a few countries in the world that can manufacture them. You need to put the different strains in each year. And we live in the South Pacific, and the strains change for the North and the South Pacific every year. And we're a small market. So, yes, we'd love to see this vaccine. Um, it's still coming. She says the value of getting more people immunised is so-called herd immunity that offers better protection to all rather than on a case-by-case basis. So it's a real policy headspace shift. At the moment, New Zealand's still halfway between the two. We offer individual vaccination protection, but we're also saying to frontline healthcare professionals and people in occupations where they're dealing with people at high risk, vaccinate so you don't spread to others. 
So whether we can create community value systems about protecting each other it remains to be seen in this interesting world with lack of trust nowadays. There are people who reject the use of vaccinations and question not only their effectiveness but also their safety. But while research on ways to counter the flu virus continues, there is still the matter of being ready to deal with a pandemic that's likely to arrive. And not everyone is happy with the way our response system is set up. Public health professor Michael Baker is worried about the way things are broken into smaller parts. Well, my major concern is our what you call our public health infrastructure. And I've been working in this field for about 25 years, and I've worked at a number of different agencies, and I'm very concerned with two things that have happened. One is what you call erosion, that's uh, dropping off or the supply or capacity declining over time, particularly of staff, and the other is fragmentation. I mean, we're a small country, we don't have a lot of expertise in specialised areas, and what we've done is we've now cut up these public health functions into lots of little bits, and it might surprise people to know just how much um, these functions are divided up. If the future is very predictable, that may work. But the things that I'm talking about are highly unpredictable. And when they come, they will come in a way that no one expects in many cases. And you need to then assemble almost a military-style operation to manage that. So you've got a whole lot of people with all the skills in place who are used to working with each other. Um, They have the information systems, the training, and the mandate to act. And they're supported by great legislation as well. And I would argue we don't have those things now. He'd like this country to mark the 100-year anniversary of the great pandemic by setting up a specialised public health agency similar to those established in England and Wales in recent years. But the Emergency Management Team Director, Charlie Blanche, says through contracts, collaboration and coordination, he's confident of the high-quality surveillance and response system being provided. But in the end, he says... Just as in any emergency, people have to be prepared to look after themselves and their friends and family. And those responsible for the surveillance that is so important in being able to respond to a developing threat hope to be able to speed up how quickly they can spot trends. They're looking to new information sources such as social media to be able to report back in what ESR's Lisa Oakley describes as almost real time. So what's reported on Facebook, what people are tweeting, and you would be amazed at what people tweet. So Give me some examples. What? <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed that people tweet that they have diarrhoea and sickness. <laughs> are these things you want to share with the world? We're monitoring, for example, sales of medicines, over-the-counter sales medicines. I think the key really is people are expecting... Now, there's, there, there really is a strong expectation of near real-time reporting. Some of the most useful sources of information have proven to be calls to Healthline and what people are Googling. Lisa Oakley says pilot studies have been carried out and they're now considering whether such monitoring will be rolled out. But back at Wellington Hospital, Michelle Baum's biggest worry is about being able to predict what's coming next. For example, in um, 2009 with swine flu, we were looking at um, birds in China and thinking that was going to be the source of the next pandemic when actually it was pigs in Mexico. It's very difficult to predict even with global surveillance and it's very difficult to know which signal that comes up because we're getting signals all the time, which is going to be the one that sets off the pandemic. 
That programme was written and presented by me, Philippa Tolley. If you'd like to discover some great listening, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz forward slash insight, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, modern learning, future-proofing our children or leaving them hanging. That's all from Insight for today. Lovely to have you listening, and do join us again next week.